Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I am so excited to have Peter Panagor back on the show today. If you weren't able to listen in to his first interview, please tune back to last week and listen to the beginning of his fascinating story. Peter is a two-time near-death experiencer. He is also best-selling author of Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. Welcome back to the program, Peter. I'd like to put the beginning of this interview into a little bit of context. The interview last week ended when Peter was talking about during his near-death experience, and he was on the other side having a conversation with the divine. During this conversation, he was talking about the reasons he would want to come back to this earthly realm. And the theater company was one of them, interestingly. So this is where this interview begins. Enjoy. I was in a theater company going on a national tour. <laughs> I love the story. <laughs> this, 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 what, one reason it's so profound is that you were you. You know, this was happening, but you were you. Enough that you, of course, cared about your parents, but then that you'd think about the theater company. Oh, so I love this part. I, I made a, I was a Boy Scout. I made this promise. I was like, because before I, this, I was in the, the Theater of Silence out of Montana State University. Yes. I'd been on tour for 20 years. And that was for the deaf. It was for the correct? deaf, and it was in sign yes. language. Yes. Uh, and they, we did, we had 64 shows planned, 24,000 miles, and they did this every year. And I was in the new cast. I was the, this year's cast. And the uh-huh. director had to actually Jack, who is, I, I love Jack. I still know Jack. Okay, yes. um, he's he's old now, but he's he's still beautiful. And he he actually took my collar, and said, "Don't you get hurt on this trip, because there are no understudies. You'll ruin it for everybody." Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> like pressure. And so I said to God, "You know, I'm going to be on this theater tour. I made this promise. I was, you know, and and God gives no answer." And so God's like, welcome, come home, love, enter into my love. And I said, I still haven't got to the door yet. And God said, no, you haven't. I said, well, if I, if I go back to live my life, can I come back here to the oneness of being? If I go back to help my parents so that they don't have to endure this suffering, because, because I know they're going to get peace in the end. But between now and then, it's going to be terrible, yes. worse. Yes. And, and if I can prevent that um, and know that I can come back here. So can I come back here? If I go back and live my life to this oneness of being, this infill of, of beauty and joy. And God said, yes, you can come back here, but I want you to stay. And I said, well, um, since I get to come back here, I choose to live my life. And God said, you won't live your life. Send me back. 
And, and on, the, on the way back, I chose an entry point back into my life. I, it was like I had 10 million choices uh, of where I was going, of what kind of life I would live. I was making a choice of the life I would live. And, and there was like a, it was like this big round circle um, with all 10 million entry points. And all these were like strands of my future life, but they all interacted. I could see all of it. And there were all these interactions of the choices that I would make that would create the life that I lived um, and, and move between these. Like if I chose this entry point up here, I could end up down here because of all the choices right. that I made. And, but I chose, but it, in the middle of this was, a, was the purity of the beam of, of the one light itself. And I thought as I went and I had an instant to make this choice, I was like, nah, I like fun too much. And so I chose off to the side. I didn't choose the high edge of, of, of absolute hedonism. I kind of right. went toward the middle edge of bohemianism. And, <laughs> um, and, and so um, I made that decision. And the next thing I knew I was being crushed down like a, like, like a deflating balloon under pressure. Like I still had, the, I felt like I was, I was still infilled with the oneness and it was all squeezed out of me. It was all crushed out of me. And then I felt like I was screwed back into my body painfully. It was a very painful process. And then suddenly I'm, I'm back in this, this wretched thing that I don't understand. And because uh, I, I know that I'm not this thing, I don't know what this thing is. And I'm just racked with pain, all, I, painlessness, full of pain in an instant. And it took a while for me to, come back online like my, my brain to start functioning and start yes. understanding my body and and breathing and heartbeat and all these things were going on and I'm suffering and and I don't know how long I'm there and I'm, and I'm I'm being jostled and jostled and I'm feeling suddenly I'm feeling jostled and I hear now I'm beginning to hear sound and I hear screaming but I don't know what's screaming I hear I see I hear noise and and eventually I'm being I'm being pulled and I kind of climb up and I'm coming back to consciousness and my partner tim as and he's and he's talking i can see him and it's like and i don't understand what's going on and and finally i hear him screaming at me you were dead you were dead if you died i died and he's totally in a panic i mean all night long totally level-headed not level-headed now right. just fear like pure fear and joy because now i'm i'm back right and um and so as I've come back to my body again and begin to understand what's going on inside me, he gets me to pull on the rope. And I pull on the rope and it, and it came free in the first pull, like a, like a miracle. Meanwhile, I'm totally disoriented. So I'm- I, I would think so. I'm living inside of this thing. My impression is I'm, I, I, my impression is I am now I'm keenly aware that I am not my body. I feel like I'm in a movie or in a play and, and, every, and, and I'm, I'm not this person, but who am I and what happened to me and where was I? And, how, and I feel like I, I was a completely different person, but I, couldn't, I didn't have any containment units for what had happened to me. No way to explain to myself where I was now or what had happened to me, but I knew that I was utterly not the person that I had been before. I was like a new person in an old body right were you processing at all or i mean i was in you, shock you were in shock i was yes. i was in shock and i i was trying to figure out because i felt like i was in two places i was okay right, so so right. this is my first experience of being in two places at once 
And so I, I, I'm always in two places at once now. And, yes. but when this first happened, I was like two thirds up here and one third in here. And so I'm trying to negotiate mm. with between these two worlds at the same time. And so just existing was hard. Uh, I didn't, I didn't begin to process for a while. I took this class called, I was in the English department and I went outside into the philosophy department. I took a class, uh, no, it was in the comparative literature department, comparative literature, East and West. And we read this book guy by a name, guy named C.F. Happold, which I recommend to everybody. C.F. Happold, the book is titled Mysticism. It's a survey, it's a, sur a book of a survey great for 101 class of mystical writings from around the world. And when I say mystical writings, I'm not talking about incense and, and crystals. I'm talking about right. the Buddha. I'm talking about Rumi and Julian of Norwich and Meister Eckhart. And, and so when we read this book and uh, I take this class and I go to him for a meeting and I say, he's a, he's a Catholic deacon. And meanwhile, we've planned a trip to a Zazen retreat to the yes. Trappist Monastery uh, where my, I went to Catholic high school, Catholic prep school, and my teacher, my senior year, had gone to the same monastery, learned the practice of meditation from the monks and brought it back to us. And I've been, so I've been a meditator anyway since I took to it immediately in 77. Yes. So this is like 82 or something. And, um, or I don't remember what year it was, 80. And, um, I say to him, I've got this friend who had this mystical experience and he's trying to find, I'm totally lying to him. And I don't know if he knew that I was lying to him, but I was definitely lying to him. And I said, he's, he's trying to find his way into the oneness of being back to where he was. And what should he do? Should he become a, a, a Zen Buddhist? Should he become a Hindu? And he said to me, no, you should, you should tell your friend, to stay within the tradition he was raised in, whatever that happened to be, because within all major religions, there is a taproot of mysticism, and that if he's really intent on finding the divine, he'll find it within the literature of the mystics within his culture, and then he won't have to learn a new culture, and he won't have to learn new languages. He'll be able to build on what he already has. And you were raised Catholic? Catholic and Orthodox. And, hmm. and so, so I... Well, I discovered that in this C.F. Happold's book that there were true mystics in the West, Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bengen, um, people who have had these unitive transportive experiences that are not spoken of in the West because nice. the Catholic Church likes to keep them at arm's length. People like in 20th century, Tellier de Chardin, who was silenced. Uh, his writings were not published, or Thomas Merton, who was, who was silenced for a while. They, they wanted to keep him away from people. So he told you to go within your own... Go within your own culture tradition. Find that little right. niche um, mysticism in that. So, but that's not what you did. Well, it is sort of. So we go to, the, oh, okay. we go to this monastery for the Zazen retreat. And, yes. and we, have, we get to spend an hour with the guest master. His name is Theophane Boyd, Father Theophane Boyd, who's also the, novic the novitiate master. And so I walk into this room. And so I came back. I came back. One of the side effects that I came back with is that I, I see the light in every single person. I fall in love with every single person that I meet. It's not like I want to do that. It's just a side effect of it. And, yes. and I see, if I look, the shimmer 
that that radiates this far away from every single person. And so I walk into this room with my classmates and we sit down and I see this guy and he's like a, like a pillar of glowing light. He's like, it's not like this, it's like this. And I'm, I, I was like, oh my God, I'd never seen such a thing. And when he looks around the room it, and he looks at me, it was like getting hit with blue laser beams. And I thought, this man knows how to find what I lost. My answer, yes, yes, yeah, has the answer. He does, and so my buddy says to him, so what's it like being you? And he, he closes his eyes and he rocks and he says, I used to be asleep and now I'm awake. And I thought, Oh my God, this guy. And so I, I attached myself to him. He was not, he was kind of reluctant, um, but, <laughs> but I attached I, myself to him as my spiritual director for two decades uh, because, and he became, wow. he became uh, my guide and also and, uh, in lots of different ways. So, and then I read Paramahansa Yogananda's book at the same time. So I, I've been studying his monastery, a little background here, Centering, yes. centering Prayer is the yes. Thomas Keating, Basil Pemmington, uh-huh. might be familiar to some of your audience. Yes. Um, they studied with Sasaki Roshi and Maharishi Mahayogi as they developed Centering Prayer. That, they did a, this, this long study with these other monks in order to reinvigorate their own practice. Right. And so they came up with Centering Prayer, which is the basic of the meditation that I've been practicing since 77. Meanwhile, I read Brahmanji Yogananda's book and the chapter about meditation where you can carve your way back to God. And I thought, I'm going to seek my chakras. I'm going to look for my subtle body because I had this experience without even trying of feeling my chi. And if I could feel it without even trying, what can I discover if I apply my whole life to it? And so I developed my own inner yoga practice while I practiced my my meditation life in combination, um, kind of a mashup between centering prayer, um, uh, Yogananda's style, and uh, the idea in in yoga is self-realization. Most of the yogis know that. But what they don't realize is that it's not about the, the small s, it's about the capital S. It's the union with the, with the Atman. It's the union with the Brahma. It's the union with the oneness of being that we're in pursuit of in yoga. And that there's and that meditative practices. This is what I learned when I got my degree in graduate school, which I didn't go to architecture. So I, I blew yes. I blew off the family business <laughs> and the lifelong plan that I'd had since I was like five. Um, right. Too. I can't see you as an architect right now for some reason because you're so good at this. Uh, well, thanks. I had <laughs> I had no choice. I I right. I chose to come back, but I did not. I was I was upset the moment that I came the first the okay. second morning when I realized what my job was. That's I was like, no, I don't want that job. I I had this like roaring inside me saying, message message and and i could hear this like in my head message message i'm like no way am i doing that first of all right i don't even know what to say because i can't even understand what had happened to me how can i talk about what i don't even understand and second of all i'm not doing that that's kooky everybody's thinking i'm crazy have you ever 
had you even ever heard of an NDE? Oh, no, I didn't even figure out, I didn't even know the, the name of it until 86. I didn't, right, I didn't, because what year was this? this? I mean, what were you were like 20, 19, 21, 79. Yeah. And, and I was uh, all I knew. So the reason I, I took this comparative literature class, I went to the monastery. I've been, I started reading um, the Vedas and the, the sutras and the Upanishad. And, and I mean, I read, not just like reading them a little bit, I read these things and, right. and the Taoism. And I read every single bit of literature that I could possibly find to try to find people like me. And I discovered that the mystics were most similar to me. I found my peer group among dead people. And so I decided that, and meanwhile, I was corresponding with the monastery and showing up on retreat and uh, decided that I would become a Trappist monk. But before I did, I would take my time and think about this and get a degree in mysticism. And so I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And I got into, I got into two out of three and I decided to go to Yale and they didn't have, not, none of them had classes in mysticism, courses in mysticism, but all of them had classes around the university. And so when I applied, I went, I spoke to the Dean of Students, Dean of Admissions, um, and uh, she agreed to become my independent study teacher for three years for my, for my degree. And I didn't tell her why I was doing it. I didn't tell right. anybody why I was, what I was up to, because I decided that it w if it was real, it would manifest itself. And if it wasn't right. real, I didn't want to tell anybody because then I, they're going to think I'm crazy. So you were actually still kind of questioning it. I mean, I know in your heart, you must have known, but still sort of questioning from the human standpoint, was I crazy? Did I imagine this? Was I, it real? That sort of thing. No, I didn't. I yeah. knew that it was real. I knew that, but mm -hmm. I knew, I, I felt like, I feel like an autistic person. I mean, I'm not autistic, but I had, right. to, when I came back, I had all, all my belief systems erased from me. I was all of my beliefs and everything in culture and haircuts and, and shaving and politics and, and history and, and, everything it was all gone wow like who am i well who am i now who am i now because because my yeah. orientation was to the place of non-being and so all i recognized immediately that all belief systems are well they're invented it's yes. all language language itself is an invention and language itself mm -hmm. we think is like the defining thing for who we are but it's really not real you know, it's all yes. about compar comparatives. And, um, and so I had, to I had to learn how to function in the world um, within the rules that were presented to me. And I recognized mm -hmm. in those rules that if you talked about stuff like this, they lock you up. Right. And so I decided, because, and, and furthermore, I wasn't articulate about it. I had no language even to think about it, let alone talk yeah. about it. Well, understandably so. When you studied mysticism, who even knew they had a degree in mysticism? Well, they don't. Well, okay. Well, you, you, you did. Well, I did because <laughs> you because pieced it together. I pieced you it together to. mm -hmm. right, because right. there were classes around the university and Joan Forsberg, the the dean of admissions. Thank God for Joan. Um, yeah. Allowed me to bring in professors and to study with professors. Uh, and create my own classes. So I created, I created classes at Yale to study what I wanted. Uh, you know what? Don't you just, 
those are like angels that land in your life. You know, I'm getting goosebumps. I mean, the Jones of the world that just said, yeah, Peter, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's do it. What did she have nothing to gain? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really beautiful that that she did that. But anyway, we love you, Joan. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's where you found your your tribe I was in mysticism and mystics. And you said with dead people, but I mean, were, did you find modern day mystics? Well, I made a I made a scholarship choice, and what I de- what I decided to do was not study anybody modern, because I figured that if 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 the book has been passed down for centuries quietly it has value and i could trust yes. it greater that's not to say that the modern mystics aren't it's to say that i didn't know right understood so how did the autobiography of a yogi um i started reading that once i'm embarrassed to say i don't think i read the whole thing i i'm sure i would remember um how did that was it his teachings how do you how do you pronounce the the teacher yo yogananda how, yeah, Yogananda. Yes, yes. Just really briefly um, from his book, what are some of the, the lessons that you learned that really helped well, you? Well, the, one of the things that really impressed me was that his teacher visited him after his death. After his teacher's death, his teacher visited him and like yeah. like a Christ-like sort of uh, apparition. Yes. And I and from where I was, uh, my perspective, that is was already totally possible. I mean, so I was like, this guy sees like I do. Right. And so I thought, and the other thing that I, that I learned from him is that you can carve your way back. And so the, uh, Desjardins calls it the self divinization. And so it's the practice of mental focus in, in a minute, in a form of meditation that, uh, you die to the false self and you create space for the divine. Oftentimes people say, you know, pray for me for healing. Well, I do because they want that. And, and I can, I can pray for healing for them, but I'm much more interested in, and so how do I put it? I say, so somebody who wants one thing in their life, they want joy in their life and they focus on joy, 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 joy over here or healing, healing, healing over here. And maybe you get joy, maybe you get healing. But if you go inward, you get joy and healing and wholeness and wonderful. You get right. everything. You get all these gifts together as a, a because it's all part of the unity, all part of the oneness. And all our perspectives on these, these wonderful gifts, they're all fragmented. And so yes. having experienced the oneness of being, my natural orientation is to want that again. And so right. um, to give the energy to another person is to, I suppose one could say healing, but it's really about letting them sense the light that's already in them. Yes, be, that makes sense. Yes. And that's the healing. I read, reread Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, in which he gives the four characteristics of mystical experience. It's passive. It happens to you. You don't make it happen. It's transient. It has a beginning and an end. It's noetic. It leaves you with a knowledge that's lodged in your soul that is akin to wisdom and can't be spoken. It's ineffable. And so given that knowledge, because I, I noticed a conflict between the, the people who wanted to be near-death experiences, which I do not recommend to anybody because it totally messes <laughs> with your life. 
um, yeah. is, is, is that people are like, oh, I wish I could be a near-death experiencer. Uh, you're so different. And I'm like, not really. Let me think about this. Maybe near-death experience is a mystical experience. And maybe it fits within William James's core marks. And lo and behold, it does. And so mystical experience is another form. I mean, a near-death experience is another form of a mystical experience, yeah, a mystical which is why my peer group were long dead people. Because oh, I'm like them. And so oh I decided this Sunday morning to ask my friends, who here, raise your hand, has ever been visited by a deceased loved one? And nobody raises their hands. I'm like, come on, I did. And now they, everybody knows I'm, you know, I'm already out as an NDE year. So they feel comfortable. Half the people in the church raise their hands, 50%. And I say, so now who here's ever told anybody? And they all say, me. I say, who here's ever told that in church, all hands go down. Nobody talks about it. Nobody. And I repeated that process in in every single church I went to. And I asked a whole bunch of other questions, like who here's ever had a angel experience? Who here's ever been out of their body? Who here's ever uh, been visited by a ghost? Who here's ever had uh, an enwrapping of the love of, of Jesus that you ascribe to Jesus that feels like love divine? Um, and pretty soon I had 70% of every congregation raising their hands. Who's ever talked about it? Nobody. And so what I decided to do is write a book and expose myself I'm going to ex- expose my, my life as a secret mystic, my inner life as a stranger in a strange land. And I've asked okay. a bunch of people, maybe 15 other people, to contribute their stories so that we can, we can look at the, the wider varieties of mystical experience that happen right. to common people and try to um, broaden the tent of conversation because... Uh, say, for instance, and it wasn't until the 1970s that people began to talk about domestic violence publicly. It was a public secret. Everybody knew it was going on. Nobody talked about it. Right. And the same with LBGTQ. Yep. And so this is one of those things. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's afraid to talk about it because nobody wants to be the kook. And, and because lots of the Christian churches think that the revelation of God ended when the last period was put at the end of the Bible and that God's not talking to us anymore. When it turns out that God's talking to everybody and people are just yeah. afraid to talk about it. It's interesting because I was listening to, I'm inter- interviewing Mark Pittstick um, on Monday because they wrote a, a children, young person's book about, about the afterlife. And someone asked him, they said, why are people afraid to talk about this? I mean, wouldn't, doesn't it make sense that most people or all people would be really excited to know, to know about this? To, I mean, it's, it, it changes the whole, the whole dynamic. And what he said, and that's one reason I want to write this children's book. And what he said was that um, a lot of it is because they don't want to become hopeful. Uh, They've been beaten down so many times right. and all these people that we used to put on pedestals, whether it's physicians or pastors or presidents or, you know, everyone has just the way the world is. And it didn't, you know what, it didn't quench my curiosity because I still, but I got it. I understood what he said. I listened carefully because it is so true. I mean, if, if people would just 
it's it's just so so exciting but no one wants to talk about it well I, I made a specific choice in my life to be exactly who i am and and not not try to put on any sort of airs not try to um pretend that i don't make mistakes and that and that i have not you know i haven't i have not lived a perfect life i am not a perfect person and uh, I've done, uh, even after my near-death experience, I've done things that I wish that I hadn't done. And yes, um, that I'm a human being. Human, yes. So I think part of the cultural problem is, is that, is that when we encounter people who um, we want to hold up on pedestals, when they fall, we lose faith in them. And it's never about them. This is, spirituality is not about the carrier. Spirituality is about the light itself. And when you see the light in someone else's eyes, it's not your light seeing their light. It's the light seeing itself. It's never about the messenger. If you think it's about the messenger, you're making a mistake. If the messenger tells you it's about me, don't believe that person. Like, you know, I look at, I, and I, and um, a particular, I won't mention his name, but a particular yogi who became very famous, who ran hot yoga studios globally, once yes. once said, I am the most spiritual person you'll ever meet. And to me, you know, I, I, I hear Lao Tzu in my head, those who speak do not know and those who know do not speak. And if you are saying that, you are not that. Um, yes. And because, and, 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 and I think that if everyone has the space inside themselves to know the truth that the light isn't theirs and to share it freely, like give it away, um, then humanity will have the opportunity to unite in a new way. I know that sounds pie in the sky, but now there are tens of millions of near-death experiences in America alone, yes. all over the world. Ten, tens of millions? Tens of Pimvan Lomo, uh, a, a wow. retired researcher in Western Europe is the number giver for that in his research. Right. And wow. Uh, wow. yeah, it's because science is raising the dead. Yeah, yeah. Well, science, you know, you also, another wonderful thing are the Eben Alexanders and the Mary Neal and these amazing, you know, people that are, I mean, you're amazing too, Peter, but you know, the, the physicians, the rationalists, the doctors, those, yes, that who were materialists that they, and they're just, you know, head spinning around. And that's, I think that's really bringing it, you know, bringing out to, and then I'm sure, you know, Jeff O'Driscoll. I and personally, Jeffrey, yep. yeah, I love those guys. I've interviewed both of them and, um, and, and it's interesting because I, I interviewed um, Raymond Moody and he said, you know, that's, that's what finally, their shared death experience was what yeah. made him finally, after all these years, <laughs> throw his hands up and say, I give up. <laughs> you know, I give up. <laughs> you got to love that guy. It was, it's so good. Well, Peter, I need to, we need to wind it down, but gosh, I wanted, um, could you please just share um, a little bit about centering prayer and yoga and how you use that in your life and um, how others could learn more about that? I know it sounds, well, anyway, that. And also just any practical spiritual tools we can all use to help find, find balance in life. Um. I would say, first off, that you can read every book in the world about 
yoga and mysticism and you can know all the names about everything and you can have a very strong knowledge and not know a single thing about the unity. And so it's really not about learn about no book knowledge. It's and and I've, I've and I say that as someone who I've pursued this with my life. I mean that's yes. that's my thing. And you're very academic. I'm, I am. Obviously. I am. And yes. um, but it's all as a mechanism of expression, not as a mechanism of understanding. It's uh, the understanding itself it comes simply by by turning oneself inward and seeking heaven within. And, it, it, and I think the mo one of the most maligned spiritual teachers of the of the ages is Jesus, because yes. because Christianity kind of ruined him in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Yes. But um, yes. but among the things he said, like I said, was, you know, turn your eyes single and your body's filled with light. He also said, seek heaven above all things and all things will be added unto you. And so the the, the idea of centering prayer is to it's like I would call it. Uh, heartfulness prayer, heartfulness, heartfulness meditation, mindfulness meditation. It's very similar. Mindfulness meditation, you get all the benefits of mindful meditation, peace and calmness and self-awareness and, and observing yourself and all those good things. But with heartful meditation, you get all of those things and you orient yourself to the divine and you get all these spiritual gifts as a result. Right. And so centering prayer is a, is a technique, technique of an of self-negation it's it's the it's the carving away at the duality of the of the ego it's carving away of the of the at the duality of the ego and the ego is always the one telling us who we are and what we're doing and what our story is and so when you get in meditation is super simple and it, it's complex in that it takes determination so dark room phones off eyes shut I sit in the chair I'm sitting in, or I have a Zafu and a Zubaton I kneel with. But um, I sit in this chair. I try not to use any muscles to support my back. I try to let my skeletal structure hold the weight um, so that I'm not straining anything. Hands on my lap, eyes shut. I have a simple prayer. I use the Jesus prayer, which comes out of Eastern Orthodoxy, nod to my background. Um, and I breathe that in and I breathe that out a million times. And I focus my mind on my third eye primarily as I begin, I drive my mind and my breath up to here and I keep my mind and my breath here. And I ride my prayer word very gently. I don't grasp it and I don't hold it. I let it ride on my breath. And when my mind runs away, I don't try to chase after it. I just go back to my word. And as far as my mind goes, a minute it's been off and running, I just come back to my word. And what happens is, is that as you burn your prayer into your mind, your mind learns to pray on its own all the time, like a tape loop running in the back. So that when you begin your meditative practice, it's already running there. All you have to do is bring it up to the forefront in order to engage with it. It's like a car's already, the car, the engine's already running, you just need to put it in gear. And right, right. when you're in the in this place, the word can fall away. The word matters only insofar as that it's brief and then it focuses the mind and reminds you of the presence of God. The mantra. The mantra. Talking I'm talking about, about a mantra. Yes. That's right. I'm talking yes, about a mantra. Yes. And then what happens is, is that the mantra drops away and you're left observing the breath. And you can just observe the breath with no running story. Just observe the breath. And then the breath can fall away and you can fall inside this space of peace. And you can just, you might just get there for a second. And as soon as you think, I'm in the space of peace, you're out. 
and you got to go back to the mantra. As soon, right. When you're observing your breath, as soon as you observe, I'm observing my breath, you're out. And, and this particular practice of sitting with perception without grasp is an advantage for anyone who has a mystical experience when they're popped out of their body or, or they have a, a, a visitation of a presence because the technique applies to not grasping then either. Because as soon as you grasp at that, as soon as you say angel presence or there's the light, you're out. Yes. So the longer yes, you get to, the, the more you practice this technique, the longer if you have one of those experiences, which it encourages as a result of the long practice, because you're basically digging your way back to God from this side. Right. Your action is, is, to, is to become more aware of the presence of the light, which then makes the light more present. Yes. These two yes. things work in combination. So meditation is simply a mantra and breath repeated unendingly with dedication. If you try it for seven days, you'll find in those seven days for 20 minutes, you'll find a moment where this works for you. And if you stay at it, it keeps getting better until the body demands that you do it. And it rewires the brain. Physically, you get brain plasticity. It rewires the brain in order to make this easier for you. So that's that's meditation. So um, what would you, is there anything I haven't asked you? I could talk to you all day. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you or some words of wisdom you'd just like to, to wrap this up with? Yeah, I can wrap it up with uh, love. And that, that humanity is built to love each other. Mothers love their children. Children love their grandmothers. Cousins love cousins, brothers love sisters. There's hate in the world too. But, but love is the thing that's built into us. And that's the treasure of life. And every amount of love that you give away to your cat and your cat gives to you back, you get to keep that love. Love, love is the treasure of earth. Love is the treasure of heaven. And if there's a purpose to living, it's, it's to bring love to earth, become a channel of the peace, become a channel of the love. And the last thing I'll say is, if it's God you want, don't pursue anything else. Seek the oneness of being over and over and over again, and you will find your way. Well, Peter, thank you so, so much. It's just been an honor and a pleasure to, to talk to you and get to know you. You have a wonderful day. Too, peace to you, Marlon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.